Thanks for tuning into Reach Radio, a podcast for public health professionals looking to expand their network, be inspired, and discover resources and tools that help improve the experience of public health professionals and patients in their communities. I'm your host, Fran. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Reach Radio. Today, I am honored to introduce you to Joanne Troutman, the CEO and president of the Greater Susquehanna Valley United Way. Joanne focuses on creating and measuring social impact by bringing various partners together to create programs and innovative solutions to community needs. She's particularly passionate about public health, health equity, and social determinants, as well as workforce development. Joanne, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about your organization. My organization is Greater Susquehanna Valley United Way. We are a collective impact organization working at the hyperlocal level in rural central Pennsylvania. United Way is a worldwide organization with a local affiliate structure. So we are our own 501c3. We are accountable for our own local fundraising and goals. But we generally follow a model that United Way Worldwide lays out around income, health, and education. And so those tend to be where our focus areas lie. And in our community, we are a lead public health organization as well as a grant funder. And we do a number of our own programs as well. That's fantastic. And it's very insightful, you know, the way that the United Way is structured and that you operate as an independent institution. How does that get reflected? and the types of work that you're, and projects that your team is, is busy doing? Having our own autonomy allows us to pivot, as was the case when, when COVID hit. We were able to pivot and, and shelve some things and really focus squarely on public health response related to COVID. So that's a perfect example of how our United Way has been able to structure itself and be flexible because we have that local autonomy. We did it the year before COVID hit with the closure of a major business where uh, we suddenly had a thousand people in a very small rural county out of work. So we've done this a number of times. It's just part of our DNA as a United Way to kind of structure and function the way that our community needs us to. I think it's challenging too sometimes because not every United Way has the resources or the wherewithal or really the strength that our United Way has. So United Ways can function differently from community to community. And that, you know, I would say that presents us some challenges as well, but we're lucky that we have a really strong Pennsylvania network and we do everything we can to support one another. So Joanne, I'd love for you to describe for us a little bit about the Valley. Tell us about the community that you serve, some of the dynamics and, and you know, some of the uniqueness of your community. Environmentally, this is one of the most beautiful places, I think, in the world. I've been other places. And I think, you know, if people come here, they realize that it's a pretty, pretty well-kept secret. We're not that far from major cities like New York and Philadelphia, um, even Baltimore, Washington, Boston is a day's drive. So I often joke that if people find out about how beautiful it is and what the environment has to offer in our community, they're going to be packing up their stuff and moving out here. But, you know, we do have our challenges and and we have some very deep pockets of rural poverty across the three counties that we serve. One of our counties is one of the poorest counties in the state. And the other two counties are among, have among the best outcomes in the state. So we do have a wide variety of constituencies and partners as a result of 
the way that our community demographic sort of arranges itself. We are lucky in that we've got great healthcare here, which is unusual for most rural communities. We have about five healthcare systems that feed into and support patients in our community. You know, we struggle with the opioid crisis like every other community across the country. And, you know, that is a focus area that we have supporting people with substance use and behavioral health disorders. And um, that creates some challenges. We don't have any public transportation. I think that's something that's important for people to know. You can't just hop on a bus or, you know, on the train and go somewhere from where we live. You have to really plan if you don't have a car, you know, don't have the means or don't have anything you can borrow or somebody to give you a ride. It's just not that easy to live here if you don't have transportation. So we do have some unique challenges that we have to address. Now that is a unique challenge, right? Because I mean, I think about some of the programs that even REACH is focused on that look at issues such as maternal mortality prevention and access to transportation, delays in being seen because of absence of transportation is a huge challenge. Is that an area that your organization is focused on? Actually, yes. Um, Transportation is sort of an implied ad hoc item to everything that we do. We were actually getting ready to launch a major fixed route bus initiative pilot two months after COVID hit. So that has obviously, you know, COVID has obviously impacted the workforce to the extent that we know that we are having to reevaluate all of the plans that we have. And I don't entirely think that's a bad thing. You know, we have to take very measured risk with the limited resources that we have and the rules and regulations that we have to abide by. Even if you have a privately funded transportation endeavor, you're still accountable to political leadership and you know state level leadership in you know, the Department of Transportation. So we partner very closely with our council of governments locally, with our commissioners who run our counties locally, um, with the healthcare providers and the transportation providers. We've got great relationships. We are actually talking with them. It's not widely known at this point, but we are looking at a microtransit project that will impact some of our communities pretty directly that we're really excited about. It's going to be very cost-effective and will hopefully help give us a glimpse into whether larger transportation initiatives will be successful. We have also a low-income car loan program at United Way. You know, one of the predatory practices that a lot of corporations and, and businesses who get into the auto loan business is that they charge ridiculous amounts of interest on their loans, 18, 19, 22%, and they're allowed to get away with that. Um, and so if you don't have any credit or you have bad credit and you're low income, you go to one of those buy here, pay here car places. One of the worst things that you can do to repair your credit or to try to get transportation because more more times than not, those cars end up being repossessed because the payment amount is way too high. So we actually work with some local banks to arrange a low-income car loan program that allows us to issue car loans to people who are at or below a specific poverty rate. And we do so with 2% below prime. So it's very low income. We guarantee it with United Way dollars. It's a challenge. It's a very challenging program to run because even with all of those stop gaps, it's, you know, not everybody is successful, but we have had some successes and it's very uh, workforce dependent. You know, the, in order to qualify, you have to need for your job or to get a job. It's a low threshold, but believe it or not, some people don't meet that threshold. So 
it is a challenge to, to coordinate those programs, but it is something that we in a united way in a neighboring county have done that have, has been a specific success. That sounds awesome and really glad to, to see that such a, what you've described as a sort of a complex um, program is one that you've nonetheless been able to successfully pull off. How does it look in relation to other aspects of healthcare? I mean, access to primary care physicians, are you, especially during the pandemic, how have you been able to make sure that folks are able to get the care that they need? And really really tough. You know, all of our hospitals, like hospitals across the country, have been at capacity. So, you know, not only relative to COVID, right, they have a lot of COVID patients. I think many patients get sent home when they might otherwise have had to stay in the hospital just because of capacity issues. And then we know there's a very large contingent of people who have not kept up with their regular wellness visits. And so, they now have problems that are compounded by not seen, having seen the doctor within the last year or several months, either because of COVID restrictions or because they couldn't get there or because somebody was sick. I mean, there's a number of, of reasons why that might happen. It's been challenging. And again, I, I still think there are a lot of people that are hidden that we don't know about. We know that the opioid crisis in particular is raging. You know, we're hearing some anecdotal evidence that suggests that in 2020, the overdose numbers are going to be way, way above anything that we've seen so far. We don't have that data yet, which is another challenge that we have in rural communities, frankly. But we know that the infrastructure and the funding for infrastructure coming out of COVID is going to be hard to come by. Businesses will have closed. We know treatment providers have closed locations throughout COVID just because they can't meet the requirements or they haven't had the enrollment or census that they've needed in order to keep their doors open. So behavioral health and substance use disorder supports have for sure suffered and people have suffered as a result. You know, initially no transportation was happening even through paratransit, which is sort of our shared ride transportation solution for people who have Medicaid or, you know, are on Medicare and need to get to the doctor. Uh, they are now back up and running and, and I think, you know, bouncing back, but not having transportation again really impacts that social determinant of health that people really need in order to make their lives better. You know, I don't really have specific numbers at this point or specific issues, but those are a few things that we're really closely paying attention to. Well, those are major things that you're paying attention to, and we applaud you for um, recognizing them and keeping an eye on them. And you know, as you're describing this, many people might be saying, well, oh, well, why are you just using telehealth, right? Has telehealth been picked up by folks within the community? And tell us about opportunities and challenges around perhaps the use of digital health-like telehealth services. Telemedicine has saved lives in our community without question. I mean, I, I have even, you know, I see specialists in a town that's about an hour and a half away, and I've done neurology appointments, cardiology appointments remotely. And I am amazed at the things that they can do or see or implement remotely. The greatest challenges that we have and barriers involve access to broadband. You know, even those of us that pay for and that can pay for high level internet service and are working from home, we struggle. You know, it's a rural community. So we don't have the technology here that a lot of other larger communities have, more urban centers have. We have worked really hard as a core component of COVID response to improve access to technology and broadband over the last year. In fact, I just ran the numbers this morning, and 
52% of our COVID response dollars were spent on technology. That included setting up free Wi-Fi hubs at community centers and libraries. So extending something that already exists into a parking lot so people can sit at picnic tables outside or sit in their car and access internet, be that for school or work or filing for unemployment or telemedicine is another big one. We've also deployed internet hotspots to all of our libraries. A lot of communities around here don't have healthcare, don't have doctor's offices, they don't have even businesses in some cases, but we are lucky to have rural libraries serving every corner of every county that we serve. And so we've given them internet hotspots, mobile hotspots to loan out. And there've been a lot of really surprising outcomes from that. We initially thought it was going to be K through 12 students exclusively using them and have been some. We've also provided hotspots to school districts. So that's mitigated that need a bit. But, you know, I've heard a couple of stories. One of them is we have college students who are at home using those hotspots, but there was a gentleman who needed to have his doctor monitor his pacemaker to see if it was working and he didn't have reliable internet service. So he borrowed a hotspot and he was able to successfully have a cardiology appointment remotely with his doctor and does it every month now. He goes to the library and gets his hotspot and he has his doctor's appointment and brings it back the next day. So, you know, it's been gratifying to be able to see that we've met some needs like that. That's why I get up in the morning, you know, it helps motivate my staff to know that we have been so lucky to have the public and philanthropic support that we've had and the collaboration that we've had in order to make great things happen. I love it. I absolutely love it, Joanne. And, you know, libraries in particular, right? The, the, the fact that you've been able to collaborate with them, they're unconventional, right? A non-traditional sort of space, but is so central in communities and have the opportunity to play a very vital role. Do you envision building out even more programs with them in the community moving forward, post perhaps post the pandemic? Oh yeah, you know, I think one of the one of the greatest gifts over the last year for our team is that our impact staff has reengaged with our regional library systems. You know, libraries are some of the most vulnerable nonprofits that exist in our community, and they are so undervalued. I'm a big library nerd. Huge. I'm raising my hand with you. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love libraries. You know, I kind of credit the, the library, like our public library in my little town, my little coal town where I grew up. I loved the smell of it. I loved going in. It was very old school, very retro kind of art deco. And it looks exactly the same today. And they're one of our funded partners now at United Way. And they really, you know, I was there every day after school in middle school, you know, and it wasn't even to read. I, I don't, I think there's a lot of misconception around the value that libraries provide. They can be the hub of your community, you know, and we have a very large homeschool and Mennonite population here locally, and they rely on the libraries to give them books and to have access to the internet and do research they do a lot of really valuable early learning reading programs locally. They do outreach clinics where they will take their mobile library out to community centers and summer programs. But yes, I, we are thinking really unconventionally now about how we can utilize libraries. For example, I don't know if it'll go through and I hope I'm not jinxing it, but I am in the process of applying for two very large youth mental health grants. Youth mental health is an, a tremendous focus for us. And 
I would like to set up telemedicine hubs at libraries. So this would look like having a very small, tucked away in the corner, private soundproof room or pod with telemedicine equipment in it so that if I need to do my telecounseling appointment or I need to get my pacemaker checked or I just need to see my doctor and I can't get to the doctor because I have a transportation challenge, I can go to my library. I can walk to the library, go to use their telemedicine hub at pod and, you know, have my appointment so that, you know, you reduce no-show rates and may not be as great as seeing a patient in person, but it's better than not seeing them at all. So we're thinking about that. We're actually right now also in the midst of a Be Kind challenge. It's Kindness Month at our United Way. We do this during the whole month of February. And libraries are our kindness outpost. So they have all of our kindness swag, for lack of a better term. They have all of our signs and our stickers and they have bingo cards and all sorts of cool stuff. And they've really latched onto it and have promoted it. And as a result, people are donating to their local libraries as part of the kindness challenge. So I feel really grateful to have those partnerships. And you know, librarians are some of the smartest underpaid people that exist in the world. And I would love everybody after COVID to just go hug and say thank you to their librarian because they're pretty amazing people. They are amazing people. And the program that you're describing is amazing as well. And sounds very similar to some of what we are seeing with the VA, trying to leverage places such as the library to create these uh, telehealth hubs. So we wish you all the best with that endeavor. And Just you'd said something that I kind of wanted to hone in a little bit on, and that was you mentioned young people and their challenges with mental health. Can you share a little bit more about what's happening there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We have had a behavioral health focus for about a dozen years at our United Way. We are a collective impact organization, and together with our big partners, which tend to be the health systems and the school districts, identify key needs in our community based on mostly our community health needs assessments, but also other needs assessments that our community action agencies do. And and for a long time, behavioral health has risen to the top as the number one issue. But a very large microcosm of that is youth mental health. Children in rural communities are 1.8 times more likely to die by suicide. And when I first started at United Way six years ago, and one of my goals was to improve our relationships with school districts. And time and time again, I would go see guidance counselors and teachers and superintendents and principals. And over and over, I kept hearing mental health, mental health of our kids, mental health of their parents. We don't know what to do about this. This is a real problem and we need to address it. So we ended up designing a task force And intentionally, the people on that task force are people on the ground doing the work. So it's treatment providers, their guidance counselors, social workers who work in school districts or for school-based behavioral health, as well as nonprofit leadership locally. But the nonprofit leadership mostly in those meetings sits back and listens to what all of those people on the ground have to say. And quite frankly, not to be an alarmist, but we have a youth mental health crisis on our hands. And post-COVID, we have a social, emotional, academic crisis looming that if we don't address is going to affect everything moving forward, not the least of it, which is our economy and workforce. If we don't start investing in mental health resources for children and adolescents and young adults, we're not going to have a community to get back to. It is really problematic. So we 
have developed a youth mental health strategy. Interestingly enough, January 2020, it was released. And because we were so involved with COVID response, we put things on hold because we just didn't know how that was going to affect infrastructure and resources moving forward. We're now getting back to that. We've resumed our task force meetings. They're all remote. And we are talking about solutions. So we have a couple of things that are really low-hanging fruit for us. One of them is that if you have Medicaid in the state of Pennsylvania, you are really lucky from a behavioral health standpoint. Now, I want to be careful and say, of course, Medicaid providers are hard to come by. So that makes it really challenging, especially in behavioral health. And good luck trying to find a child and adolescent psychiatrist or psychologist in our area. But it does get paid for. And kids who have Medicaid have access to school-based behavioral health. So they can see counselors and go to group and go to one-on-one counseling while they're at school. So parents don't have to worry about taking off work. They don't have to worry about driving three hours to get a child to an appointment for a diagnosis or you know, helping them get that therapy that they need. The downside to that is that there are a lot of kids who are falling through the cracks. You know, Medicaid recipients may only make up right off the top about 10 to 15% of a school district's population. The loophole in the law says that if you have a mental health diagnosis as an adolescent or a child, you can automatically qualify for Medicaid regardless of your income. So, My children, for example, we have commercial insurance. Our commercial insurance does pay for behavioral health, but again, hard to find a provider. They can't really get service through school because we're commercially insured. But if one of my children was diagnosed with, you know, a mental health diagnosis, he could then automatically qualify for school-based and get his services at school. But the barrier is that even for the most educated people, Medicaid paperwork is really, really impossible to get through and to fill out. And you need an advocate. You just need an advocate to get you over that hump. Otherwise, you're waiting on really long waiting lists to go out to get therapy. Additionally, the waiting lists to get that diagnosis are extreme. I've heard anything as low as four months at best up to a year and a half. So if you have a child that has attempted suicide or is in the middle of a um, mental health crisis or might be mildly depressed, it might not even be a chronic diagnosis. It could be acute. You're waiting at least four months, if not 18 months, to get an appointment to get a diagnosis. And even then, the diagnosis isn't assured. There are lots of doctors who are reluctant to give diagnoses of mental health disorders, especially to children and adolescents, because of the stigma. They don't want a diagnosis that's going to stigmatize a family and a child to stick with that child for their entire lives. So there's just a lot at odds in that sort of circle of problems. But, you know, we are doing a number of things to hopefully address it. The first thing is I'm about to announce, actually, you're the first one who knows this officially. We have signed a contract or are signing a contract with a medical advocate, a Medicaid advocate, who is a private consultant who will work directly with families to get their Medicaid paperwork filled out and get them the access that they need. So that's what I consider low-hanging fruit here. If we can tap into the already existing infrastructure, by all means, let's do it. Why wouldn't we? The second thing we're doing is we're working on some major grant proposals and, you know, grants never, never a sure thing, but we have been interviewing a number of telemedicine providers and they're for-profit providers, but they're providers that specialize in adolescent mental health and school-based that aren't currently being utilized in our rural community. There's a lot, there's still a lot of stigma and reluctance around telemedicine. Telemedicine's not 
appropriate for every issue or for everyone. And there are barriers, as we've talked about, but it's a solution. And it's a solution that I think moving forward will be utilized and needs to be utilized even more. And so these companies will hopefully not just be able to give us access to licensed clinical social workers who will be able to provide telemedicine, behavioral health, but also potentially even diagnostic solutions. So we're really excited about that. Those are the kind of immediate solutions that we've come up with. Those are incredible solutions. And I really uh, thank you for sharing with us some of the programs that you're putting in place. And it sounds as though they're very comprehensive. I think, you know, you'd mentioned the word social determinants of health early on in the discussion. And it sounds as though that's where you're really doubling down is on um, identifying what those gaps are and, and ensuring um, health equity uh, by addressing those, those gaps. Do you want to add any more to that, perhaps, in regards to your team and uh, how you've sort of looked at and, and recognized the social determinants of health within your community? The community action agencies locally have been incredibly valuable to that initiative. You know, we have great partnerships with these organizations, and they're the boots on the ground. They're the ones who are doing the work and seeing the problems firsthand. And the role that United Way plays is really bridging the gaps between health providers and health insurers to help them understand that, you know, most times when a Medicaid patient or a patient at all misses an appointment, it's not because they want to miss the, the appointment. It's not because they're actively blowing it off. It's because something came up in their lives. Some kind of crisis came up in their lives. You know, they had every intention to go to the doctor that day, but, you know, maybe their car broke down or, you know, maybe their babysitter fell through or maybe the ride that they had set up didn't come through or maybe they meant to cancel the appointment and their phone got shut off. The social workers and case managers at health systems and in, in doctor's offices understand that really fundamentally. But I don't think leadership is always paying attention to that. We have an administration right now, political administration in Pennsylvania, that is very attuned to social determinants of health. They're very invested financially and otherwise in making sure that hospitals and health insurance providers are paying very close attention to social determinants. But there is still a knowledge gap. I think there's still an awareness gap between providers and patients, or I should say between providers and the administration. The administration is saying, we want you to invest in social determinants. And hospitals are sort of saying, that's good, really nice, but we've got a lot on our plates right now. And that's perfectly understandable. The role that United Ways and community action agencies and, and community-based organizations can play is saying, we'll take that off your hands. You know, if we're funded, certainly at a level, some level less than medical providers are paid, but some level that that makes it worth it for the community and makes it, and allows us to, to create meaningful change, why not invest in homelessness access programs or transportation programs or even mental health programs on the community side? And that's the work that we're doing right now. It's challenging because, again, I think people want to oftentimes just check the box, and that's not what this is about. You know, we do this work because it's really important work and because it creates impact and change. And we need to be at the table where decisions are being made, including funding decisions. I love it. I absolutely love it. One final question we often like to ask our guests is regarding resources, tools, perhaps, some resource that maybe you have tapped into that 
you're like, my gosh, people have sort of really underutilized this. Now, I know earlier we talked about libraries and I am right there with you on that one. <laughs> like they're completely <laughs> underutilized. There's so much that can be done through those spaces. Yeah. But beyond that, is there another, is there any other resource or tool that you're like, gosh, guys, you should really check this out? We need to be doing so much, a much better job at braiding funding. That's another topic that I tend to nerd out on. So one of the things that we do, you know, as an example of how I think public-private funding and public-private partnerships can work, is that we received a rural opioid grant, and that grant has allowed us to start a safe care management program. And this is sort of the gold standard of programs that work to help people with substance use disorder. We have hired a nurse. She is on our staff, and she works directly with mom, new moms or pregnant women who have substance use disorder. She has had 41 referrals since October when we started this program. Granted, that sound, doesn't sound like a lot, but I have calculated that it, that means at least one in seven babies in Northumberland County, Pennsylvania are born to a mother who has substance use disorder. And that's the population that we know about. It's probably at least twice that, if not three times that. So, you know, the need is great. And the only way we've been able to fund that has been through funding from the federal government. We are a primary partner. It came through the county. But rather than putting the money through children and youth, they gave the money to United Way. And we are the ones who hired that staff member. And the reason for that is that county by county, the way that child welfare staff and uh, salaries are structured is very dependent on political leadership. You know, I don't necessarily have any negative commentary on that, except that there are also ratios at the state level that we obviously need to abide by in, in child welfare. So at any given time, our county has 20 to 30 vacancies for case managers. And that's a small county, it's not a very big county. And so they recognized at the county level that we do a better job recruiting staff. We can pay staff more and the culture is very different. Not to mention the fact that we pay staff more but overall, our cost in the private sector is way less. On average, 30 to 40 to 50% less than what if some of our healthcare or public service counterparts have to pay because they have rules around pensions and you know uh, benefits, unionized benefits and things like that. So we're really creative about how we fulfill positions. And it has opened up conversations in areas where we may not have otherwise thought we'd ever have conversations. And, um, you know, we're right now talking with health insurers, again, about social determinants of health. There's so much possibility there for minimal investment, health insurers and providers can get services that they could never have dreamed of. You know, I, I never for the life of me understand why at a hospital or in a healthcare provider situation, they have a homelessness expert because we already have that on the community side. You know, it might take a case manager three days to find an apartment for a patient, and it might take somebody in a community action agency 30 minutes. So, you know, talking about efficiencies and resource development and money is not just about where does the money come from, but how do we use the money that we have and that we're already spending in a much better, greater, more effective way. I know that sounds really obvious, but to me, that's true, true resource development. You know, a lot of people look at, you know, I've, I've done fundraising for over 20 years in my career. That is 
you know, my bread and butter, if you look at my resume, that's what's going to stand out, you know, $60 million raised for healthcare, nonprofits, education, all of that. But I don't think what always comes across is that resource development is so much more. It's not just about going out and asking a funder for money. It's about talking about how we can braid that money with this money with another pot of money and how we're utilizing staff and how we're utilizing our partnerships to leverage what we have and do a better job. And that's really where we've seen the greatest gains in our community. And you know, the laws and the regulations don't always allow that. So I think if we look at state level and even federal level funding mechanisms and evaluate whether there's just a better way to do it, you know, whether we can take those pots of money and be more cohesive with them, we're all going to be better off. And so anybody who runs a nonprofit or runs a healthcare system, look around, like take five minutes and look around in your community and figure out who else is doing what you do. And don't try to compete with them, work with them. You know, work with the treatment providers and work with the other health system because in the long run, we're all going to be better off. You know, I always say that in order to be mission focused, we have to be, you know, mission oriented every single day. And too often we get caught up in the dollars and cents. You know, how much money? What is the bottom line? How much money is United Way raising this year? How much did you raise last year? And if we're only measuring success by bottom line, then we're failing. I think it sounds trite, but to say, what difference are we making? How many partners do we have? How much money did we save in the last year? What is it, What are our economies of scale? That's where the conversation needs to be. And too often it's not. Wise words, Joanne, wise words. Thank you so much for your time today. I just love all the amazing programs that your organization is putting together. And I can, it comes out, right? Everything that you've just described comes out in the programs that you're doing And we congratulate you on your many successes and so many more to come. Thank you for being with us today. What is the best way for our listeners to contact you or to learn more about your organization? We do a lot of social media stuff. We're Facebookers, but you can also find me on LinkedIn or our website. We're very open about how to get in touch with us through our website, gsvuw.org. It stands for Greater Susquehanna Valley United Way. Anybody can email me and reach me through that. And uh, I'm very open to chatting with anybody who wants to talk about this stuff. Well, thank you, Joanne. And thank you to our listeners. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks for tuning into Reach Radio. This program is made possible by listeners like you. To learn more about Reach and to support this program, visit www.reachtl.org.